The Hunted is a 2013 thriller found footage film. It's about two best friends who are trying to create a pilot episode for their dream hunting show. They know what they're doing, one of them armed with a bow and real expertise for the woods and for hunting, the other armed with cameras, who really wants to make this dream fruition for both of them. They've got cameras on their bodies, they've got field cameras out there, they've got night vision, everything they can to get as many angles and to make an impressive pilot TV show. But instead of finding a giant buck, which they've come there to hunt, what they find is something different altogether. Top stand or the bottom stand? Top. What was wrong with it? It just wasn't a good filming angle. Hold on. Don't step under the stand. It's not hooked up. It's coming right to us. It's coming right to the light. I don't see anything. If you spend time in the woods, you've heard all sorts of strange things. Coyotes sound like they're laughing. Rabbits kind of sound like they're screaming, like if they get caught in a snare, it really does sound like a woman screaming. And particularly cats. They say uh, a wild cat out in the woods roaring at night can strangely sound like women screaming. But for those two men in that tree hide, in, that, in those woods, that can only be a woman screaming. That's all they can hear. They can tell themselves there's no reason for a woman to be screaming in the middle of the woods. Certainly not when they hear it night after night. But what's going on? What does it mean? I think it's a really effective premise, and I think that there are moments of genuine horror in the movie. But because it is a found footage film, I have to be careful who I recommend it to. It's strange but true that a lot of people would pick up the box for this movie and read two friends trying to make their own pilot TV show and immediately dismiss it. If they're looking at it in their net Netflix queue, it would instantly just be dismissed on the grounds that it's found footage. This episode of Rankin Review is going to be something different because uh, I don't have a guest this week. Uh, it's just going to be me grinding my axe over the hate that gets spewed at found footage. It's unwarranted, and I think I'm going to make a case for it. I hope you guys are into something a little bit different, and uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a new experiment for Rankin Review, so uh, bear with me. The Hunted is an effective movie. I think it's well done. I think that even though it's clearly a low-budget movie, it, it hits all the points that it wants to. I think it's a subtler film than people would give it credit, and I think it's an underseen film. I think that people missed it. And throughout this episode, and indeed the next follow, I'm going to talk about all sorts of horror films that people made a point of missing, and I'm going to defend found footage 
Now, in that list of movies, we're not going to talk about The Hunted again, but flag this as the first of many if you're willing to give found footage a chance. Try The Hunted. Six, five, four, three, two, one. How about we do it again? So not to start in an adversarial position, but if you are absolutely unequivocal about found footage movies, I, I mean, I guess I honestly won't believe that I can reach you. But I'm going to tell you this. I've, I've brought this up on the podcast before. A lot of the times I feel like found footage movies ask the audience to meet them halfway. They present to you the story and this imagination, and you reach out with your own imagination, and you meet them halfway. And if you are the type of viewer who are unwilling or unable to meet a movie halfway, well, I can just save you a couple hours of your life right now. <laughs> it's just not going to work for you. If you are just diametrically opposed to this type of storytelling, I guess I can't help you. I also can't understand you completely. I think that there is such diversity in the genre that to just dismiss it, you're kind of closing the doors on, on a lot of good stuff. But... If that's your position, if you're, if you're just going to fight it, if it's a that's fake sort of uh, mentality, if you are just going to argue the premise, which I never understood. I heard a podcast where a guy was talking about the original Pet Cemetery and was going off on, why would they live next to that busy road? Why would they live next to that haunted cemetery? If, that, if you're going to fight on that level, I can't help you. You can't be helped. <laughs> so now that I sound like a huge prick... <laughs> let's define found footage okay kids what i'm not talking about is point of view films there's a lot of people who get you know confused with that the opening sequence of halloween is a point of view sort of shot uh peeping tom from the 1960s has a lot of famous point of view kills seen through the lens of a camera that is just sort of an aesthetic choice. I mean, in Peeping Tom, the man actually has a camera. But in Halloween and Black Christmas, it's a choice of perspective. We are seeing through the eyes of the killer. And that was starting to be played with a lot, especially in the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s slasher craze. POV's perspective work is interesting, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what's going to qualify as found footage. To me... In found footage, the camera is acknowledged. The story is being found in front of the camera and all of the characters are aware of the camera. Or it's a mockumentary where people have taken this footage and cut it together. 
or you can sort of split the difference where there's some of the stuff that the characters were filming and then there's also security footage from wherever location they were in. All of these things are being spliced together. But the idea is, the conceit is, what you've seen is captured live and raw. You know, They want to completely shatter the idea of a film set. They want the perspective to be that of the characters of the movie and thus trap you in their experience. So when I'm talking about found footage, I'm not talking about the verite shaky camera style just of itself. It's not the Paul Greengrass shaky born identity fighting, okay? It's, it's not the seventh moon or, or frustrating the Chernobyl diaries. Everybody, I see people talking about the film Chernobyl diaries saying that it's a found footage movie. It is not a found footage movie. Those movies are shot in the style as if there's a camera crew following these characters around and documenting what's happening to them. But in the realm of the story, there is no camera crew there. It's just a choice of the perspective, the choice of the, the creators, of, of the directors, to try and give it a shaky, gritty, realistic feel. For me, the found footage perspective of the camera is there. It is acknowledged. We get to know the man behind the camera usually fairly well uh, because it's his perspective that we're locked into. Or, like I said, the Blair Witch Project style, where this this is some somehow assembled footage of a, a project that they were trying to make together, uh, and you know the footage of them things getting lost. We're sort of seeing what happened to them, usually leading to a grim fate. That's what I'm talking about. So, yeah, a lot of people seem to have issues with this. Uh, there's a Catherine Bigelow movie that came out in 1998 called Strange Days, where. Uh, the Ray Fiennes character in that movie is, is sort of a collector of these memories that he sort of sells like games or drugs to people where they can experience people's memories. And there's a lot of POV sequences in there where, you know, there's a chase sequence and memory of really ugly uh, sexual assault uh, and murder sequence done through a point of view. Um, and uh, I've heard people say that, you know, look at that. That was Catherine Bigelow breaking new ground for found footage in 1998 and uh, again I feel that's more POV that's sort of like knocking on the door of it all around this time in the late 90s there were films experimenting with this sort of breaking of perspective okay there was a famous British TV special called Ghost Watch where they were supposedly doing a live TV broadcast from a haunted house and spooky stuff started happening, quote, on live television. I'm aware of the Poughkeepsie tapes, which is a collection of VHS tapes, which was supposedly, you know, a, a serial killer documenting his own, you know, adventures. And there's a film called The Last Broadcast that came out shortly before Blair Witch that, you know, a lot of people will give credit to saying, you know, they got there first. Well, maybe they technically did, but Blair Witch did it the best, and Blair Witch is the one that popularized it. And, uh, you know, I think there's a reason that Blair Witch popped and those other ones didn't so much. But you see bits and pieces of found footage found all over the place. I'm doing some research for another Rankin Review episode on Bigfoot, and I watched an 80s Bigfoot film called Night of the Demon in which one of the instigating points of the plot is a bit of footage from Campers in the Woods of Bigfoot. And I was surprised to see it so early, you know? This was the middle of the 80s. This was kind of edgy, this was kind of new, and it kind of went by unnoticed. This stuff has always been there, but what Blair Witch did was bring it right into the front driver's seat. Now you're locked in with the perspective. Now you're, you, we don't cut away because we can't cut away. You know, we can't necessarily set up the cheap, obvious jump scare because 
we don't cut from wide you know to close you know there's no artifice of filmmaking behind it because they can't use the usual tricks they have to create an environment of terror and they have to find a cast good enough to help them sell it now am i going to sit here and tell you that all found footage movies are great of course not of course not but nor could i sit here and tell you that all slasher movies are great or that all monster movies are great in fact a case could be made that their averages are relatively poor so why again why the hate to found footage okay kids what i'm going to do is i'm going to attack this argument academically if i was writing an essay or, or proposing an argument uh, in defense of the found footage, how would I approach it? Uh, and what you're going to be hearing over the course of this episode and the next are a six-point argument, and each of these points in the argument of each each limb of the tree will have within them a rank of six found footage horror movies. So although this will be low on the reviews, it will be heavy on the ranks, if that makes any sense. I am going to try to not give any heavy spoilers for the films. I will be talking about the premise of the movies in a very sort of loose ways, and in a few occasions specific scenes within the movies, but I'm going to try to not give away the whole thing. We'll save the proper rank and review reviews for when they show up on the episodes, as indeed some of them already have. So you're going to hear... 36 different found footage films discussed or, or, or made to help my argument uh, as we go along. Uh, so, again, a different sort of vibe. So, we're going to have the first three webs of the, uh, or first three wings of the argument in the first episode and the, the second in, in the second, and then my conclusions. And then by that point, you guys will all be on board with me and we can stop this foolish argument about found footage. Uh, again, thank you for playing along. This is sort of more of an audio documentary style. I'm sort of being experimental, so thanks for experimenting with me. So before we jump into my argument, I just a few things out of the way. There are, of course, the big three found footage franchises, okay? There's the Blair Witch Project, arguably the first and third, only the second is both not a found footage movie and not a quality movie <laughs> in any way, but the first and third Blair Witch Projects are, are, are definitely worthy of conversation. The Wreck franchise, the first through the third, uh, the first and second are purely found footage movies, the third's kind of splitting the difference, and the fourth is just a straight crazy zombie movie, but the whole franchise is really interesting and worthy of, of respect. And lest we forget, Paranormal Activity. There's six of them, I'm in sort of the opinion that the uh, odd-numbered of the franchise are better than the even, but I hope to have a rank and review episode on that whole franchise at some point. So none of the above franchises are going to be referenced in, in any of the any of the ranks to come in the following episodes. So I'm not going to mention Paranormal Activity, Rec, or the Blair Witch Project. Um, <clears throat> there's also some found footage ones that I haven't got around to or that are still sort of building their franchise. I've seen Creep 1. I haven't seen the sequel to it. I'm sort of going to let that thing play out before I, I, I weigh in on, on how I feel about it. 
And uh, yeah, obviously there's going to be a lot of found footage movies that I, I don't get to. So uh, forgive me. What we need to do again before we can sort of jump into the argument is I guess I have to take the devil's advocate perspective. I have to acknowledge that yes indeed there are tropes to the genre. So let's just go through them really quickly and then we really get this episode going kids I promise. The integrity of the perspective. Who is filming and why and does it make sense? I find that that can break a found footage movie really quickly when all of a sudden the perspective changes and there's no justifiable reason for it. If you break the illusion, it shatters everything. It all falls apart. We see the man behind the curtain. So integrity of perspective is something that I'm going to be dealing with. And it's something that a lot of people complain about, and justifiably so. It's one of the few arguments that I understand completely. Characters as obstacles, particularly as to create fake stakes before genuine stakes arrive, or to exacerbate a situation when bad things happen, often both. I've talked to them about this character many times on the podcast as the Cooper character. It shows up in all sorts of horror movies, but I will also concede that it shows up dramatically more often in found footage genres. Like, before the stakes really ramp up, they create imaginary stakes by having characters that are sometimes such assholes such obstacles that they become like a less credible and b just really irritating in a way that it makes the the movie harder to enjoy this is something that we're going to bump into and we'll have to deal with um when the audience watching the movie or the characters indeed in the movie are continuously demanding people to stop filming again uh this is a tough one i think you have to meet people halfway on it if they stop filming the movie ends so if you want the movie to end, and that, that, then I guess <laughs> there it is. But uh, I think that it's usually a sign that it's not working where you're having that conversation with yourself. So, uh, And again, it's a cliche moment in a found footage movie when the, the, someone starts to start a fight with the cameraman, stop filming me, stop filming me. I mean, maybe it would happen, but it's just something that people get tired of seeing. It's a trope. So here we are. Uh, going right back to the sort of big beginning of the found footage, the shaky camera that is sort of what split the audience with the Blair Witch Project. A lot of people found it almost nauseating, all the shaky camera. And in some ways, certain found footage movies that are particularly shaky benefit from a home viewing over a theatrical one. I think a case could be made for that. Um, but... Typically, you only get to see a movie once on the big screen. Most of the times, if you watch a movie that you like, it will be at home. It'll be cuddled up on the couch or laying down in bed or whatever, wherever you're watching it. And uh, so I think found footages are, are, in a way, better for that experience, that more intimate experience of being at home. But shaky camera, is it a problem? Is it shaky because it's believably shaky or is it shaky because they can't show anything so they're just shaking the camera and hoping it'll be scary? It's a problem, we're gonna to have to acknowledge it. The double-edged sword of, in, of improvisation. A lot of times, because uh, it worked so well with Blair Witch, we'll have directors or producers who are surprising the actors and trying to get genuine reactions from it. In which case, you're dependent on their performance on that sort of second on that day and uh, how keen the cast is and how good they are with playing along and being on board for what you're doing. The first take is always going to be a best with sort of a jump scare thing and how the cast reacts and how they 
improvise their way out of it. It can be a delicate thing, and it either works or it doesn't. It's true, again, of any movie, though, I would argue, that if your cast isn't there for you, the movie is going to suffer. So is that just a problem with found footage, or is that just a problem with film itself? Cast the right people. Character panic, reducing the film to screams, crying, and panting for air. Well, uh, as this is an audio podcast, I'll be playing clips from some of the movies, and you're going to be hearing a lot of screaming and crying and panting for air. I remember hearing my friends watching The Blair Witch in a different room while I was typing an essay or something, and hearing <laughs> call the name Josh repeatedly. Where are you, Josh? Josh! Josh! <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it, it's a credible reaction. If your friend goes missing, you're going to call out for him in the dark, and when you're running and scared, maybe you're going to scream. When when you panic, you cry, you, you, you freak out, and... Uh, it's a fine line between credibly reflecting that in a performance and just having the movie deteriorate into shrill screams. And the typically abrupt or tragic or uncertain endings. A lot of found footage movies just stop. They don't give you that sort of satisfactory, you know, nice lead out. And they all lived happily ever after. Or And this is how we found proof of this, you know, mysterious being. No, it's usually just... And then the movie stops. And some people find that just a fundamentally frustrating thing. Um, so as they come up, I may bring them up in, in certain areas uh, as, of the movies as we go through them. But I wanted to everybody to know that those are the tropes and I'm aware of them. I'm also going to make this argument against them. Again, I hate to repeat myself, but movies deal in tropes. The buddy comedy is based on the premise of a bunch of guys who are friends, and then for a while they're not friends, and then they're friends again. Romantic comedies are based on a girl who's either with a guy or wants to be with a guy who is terrible, but who the right guy is right in front of her and she just doesn't seem to see it. The slasher genre is just a complete cliche-ridden thing where, you know, Teenagers go someplace they shouldn't, do something they shouldn't, and they are killed one at a time, typically punishment for the sin of drugs or sex or adolescent misbehavior. All of these different genres have just as many tropes, if not more, of the found footage genre, but none of them seem to be outrightly dismissed. Very few people will just say, oh, this is a slasher movie, I'm done with it. I mean, if you're a fan of the horror movies, that's, that's kind of your bag. You know, romantic comedies may not be my favorite genre, but I'm not going to dismiss a movie because it is a romantic comedy. Wes Anderson's one of my favorite filmmakers. What am I going to do? So, yeah, there are tropes, but movies have tropes. So I don't think those alone should hang found footage. I think that's probably a good enough introduction. I think we're ready, you guys. So here comes uh, my argument. For found Dispel the myth that found footage 
is strictly for amateur or first-time filmmakers. Number six. Just pretend like you're playing. Is everything all right? We're just playing! Uh, do you want to do the interview? What? What are you doing? I thought we were staying away from them, Becca. You're going to interview him? Mom told me you worked in the coal industry for a long time. I did work in a factory. I know. Worked at night. Saw a white thing running around. A white thing? Yeah, used to run around the factory at night. Only I saw it. Started telling people about it and they... They didn't believe me. Had yellow eyes. Then they fired me. And nobody talked to me. Mom didn't tell me that. Notorious for some of the absolute bombs that he has laid since he established himself with The Sixth Sense, M. Night Shyamalan is an undeniably well-known director. And it was this found footage film, The Visit, that kind of brought him back to form. The premise involves two kids who are sent to visit their grandparents. Now, the grandparents have not had a good relationship with their daughter, but they want to have a relationship with their grandparents, with their grandkids. The creepy premise is that because the mother of the children hasn't been very close with her parents, she doesn't really realize the shape that they're in. And it turns out that the couple tend to do what is referred to as sundowning. When the night comes, when the sun goes down, their mental illness kind of manifests more. Their confusion and aphasia and senility kicks in, and they become highly unpredictable and strange. This makes an already stressful visit more stressful for the two little kids. And honestly, if not for a, you know, rapping little kid and a the, you know, typical Shyamalan trying to go for a twist ending, I think that the visit works way more than it doesn't. The strength is the premise and the execution, and of course the very strong performances of everyone involved. Also, fun fact, Mr. Shyamalan's early hit Signs has a jump scare, probably one of the scariest moments of the movie, that is a found footage sequence set at a children's birthday party. The Visit is a movie that plays on a lot of fears and a lot of trends of the modern society. How self-obsessed these kids are. How much they documented themselves before the creepiness sort of kicked in. They just sort of accidentally captured this horror movie in the background because they're busy documenting their own lives. The older daughter is doing a school project and she does want to get to know her grandparents. That was part of the reason that she wanted to do the trip. But I think the movie sort of plays on the video-obsessed generation. And it also, of course, plays on the fear of growing old and the weakness and sort of deterioration of both body and mind and how you can fundamentally change uh, the person that you are, just time. They say time cures all wounds, but it also sort of kills everything, doesn't it? I've often said nothing is more frightening than a ticking clock, and people rebuke it, but... Time, like your family, 
like who you are, there's nothing you can do about it. I think these are some of the more deep themes that Shyamalan's ever really played with, and the fact that he consciously chose to do a found footage movie when he had behind him done, you know, big budget sci-fi with Will Smith. He adapted The Last Airman Bender. He made a hilariously incompetent movie called The Happening. Uh, the visit brought this all back, reminded us that, you know, if he wants to, he can really creep us out. Shyamalan is a talented filmmaker, which is why it's so frustrating that increasingly he makes less and less interesting films. The visit reminded us that he had more to offer. If you haven't seen The Visit, it's worth a, it's worth a look. It's definitely worth your time. It is not the happening. It is not the last airbender. Um, it's interesting, and it uh, uses found footage very well. So I think you've heard of M. Night Shyamalan, and I think you know the reputation of The Visit. So that's number six. Within 10 days, it will have risen by 100%. Before, there were, I don't know how many people Something died every minute. Eight, ten, twenty. Sure. Now there were five times as many, ten times, a hundred times as many. Dead, but walking. There weren't enough bullets to stop them all. We needed supplies, gas. Without gas, we weren't going anywhere. Number five is the 2007 film Diary of the Dead, directed by George A. Romero. Diary of the Dead is a controversial one in the Romero canon of zombie movies. A, the found footage format, obviously, people can react strongly to. And B, George Romero decided to hit the reset button for this movie. It's not a direct sequel to Land of the Dead. It is a sort of reboot. A bunch of film students making a mummy movie in the woods hear reports over the radio and on the news that a strange plague of zombies is happening. And they react to it by trying to get to their various home places or safe places to sort of wait out the catastrophe and sit in front of the televisions and see what happens next. I don't think this is the found footage movie that people are going to be won over by. It has the misfortune of coming out the same year as Wreck, which is one of the greatest zombie and found footage movies simultaneously. So uh, it kind of got eaten by Wreck in that regard. And I think in order to enjoy Diary of the Dead, you have to A, be a Romero fan, and B, kind of forget the found footage. I talked earlier in the introduction about the integrity of the vision, and there is problems. You do find yourself asking, why is he recording this? Why is this happening now? Um, the, the narration can be distracting. So I recommend if you want to watch Diary of the Dead, just look at it as a zombie movie. I feel like Romero felt like he was breaking new ground, but really uh, people had already kind of got there before him. I was glad to have another zombie movie, and I certainly don't think Diary of the Dead is the catastrophe that Survival of the Dead was, but it has its problems. It also has its fun. There's some great zombie kills in this movie. There's some good sort of aside sequences of just the zombie apocalypse. You have audio cameos from people like Guillermo del Toro and Tom Savini and Quentin Tarantino. Um, 
Titania Maslany uh, shows up here in a, in, a, in a before she was super famous role. There's a lot of interesting stuff to be said and to, to find within Diary of the Dead. But I think it's for aficionados, you know. I don't think this is where you start. <laughs> you, you get to Diary of the Dead. But George A. Romero, as far as horror movies, is kind of huge. And uh, he didn't have to do a found footage film, but apparently it was something that was in the works even as Land of the Dead was happening. He wanted to take a forced perspective look at zombies. It was another way he could revisit the zombie genre and, to him at least, find a fresh take. I know uh, a lot of people had a hard time with it, especially on First Pass, but I think in a world where a lot of zombie movies are coming out every week, Diary of the Dead stands out well enough. Faint praise, I know, but number five. This diary of the dead. Actually, I think it would be better if we didn't have the music while we're actually recording the interview because the music makes it hard to edit. With it's my favorite tune. Who who is this? I don't know. During my decades of research, I've I have. Um, discovered over 40 different species going to and from the marrow. And that's just from uh, the half dozen or so entrances that I've found. A half dozen or so. Mm -hmm. Now, are they always out in the woods or near a creepy cemetery? Sometimes in the woods, sometimes in a cemetery, and sometimes in other places. Uh, the IHOP. IHOP. Adam Green might not be a household name necessarily, but if you're a genre appreciator, I think that you'll bump into him sooner or later. Most renowned probably for the Hatchet series. Uh, he's been in, in and around genre cinema for 15, 20 years now. What I respect about Adam Green is his willingness to try different things, to varying degrees of success, but uh, he's willing to weave out of his comfort zone. He's tackled psychological thrillers. He's tackled over-the-top slasher movies. He's done a sort of survival experiential horror movie called Frozen. And then there's Digging Up the Marrow. It took five years for this production to come together, and it sort of came about when Green kept on getting fan mail, that some of it which was kind of creepy, although some of the art was very, very impressive. Some of it was equally creepy, and he thought maybe he could find a story in this. And I think that's the good and bad and interesting thing about Digging Up the Marrow, is it's a movie that was finding itself as it was being made. Which isn't to say that it wasn't carefully scripted. I mean, apparently the improvised feel is just that. There were choices made, there were decisions made. But what I really enjoy about Digging Up the Marrow is this idea of the other world right in front of us, all around us, that, you know, if you know how to look, there could be a monster in any given room. And I also love, love, love the design of the creatures that we get glimpses of. They're so over the top that it feels almost 
like they belong in, in labyrinth or, or Beetlejuice, you know. If you were to report sighting one of these creatures to a police officer, they would just automatically dismiss you as delusional and insane. So in a lot of ways, it's a fairly ambitious movie. And like I said, it's a different swing from Adam Green. We follow him as he interviews increasingly strange fans and finds his way to a, quote, monster hunter who says he can prove that monsters exist. It's worthy of looking at, and uh, I think that Adam Green, hopefully, will keep on experimenting. I was very disappointed to see him returning to the Hatchet series with Victor Crowley and have had a personally bad experience with the product of the disc. I've had two discs of Victor Crowley, and both of which the sound mix is really, really bad. They, they, like, it, it's unfortunate. Plus, I don't know if we needed another Hatchet movie, and there's rumblings of a yet another to come. And I don't know, it sort of feels like Adam Green is announcing his a little bit out of ideas. In the same way, I keep on hearing Kevin Smith announcing, you know, Clerks 3, Mallrats 2, Jay and Silent Bob 2, in a way, it's sort of like, ugh, we're out of ideas. Uh, what I like about both of these filmmakers that I mention is when they, you know, take big swings. And love it or hate it, digging up the marrow was a big swing. And I mainly love it. There are some bumps in the road. I think it's always weird when you're playing yourself in a movie, and uh, more often than not, you the, the actors tend to lean on the asshole side of the characters when they're playing themselves. They like to play sort of a... I don't know, an uglier, meaner version of themselves in a way that's sort of self-aware and amusing. But uh, if you want real protagonists that we can sort of care about and get behind, I mean, the, the focus should be the story and um, maybe not necessarily loving everybody, but giving them a goal and giving us something to cheer for. What it really works at is looking at the camera in these dark landscapes and where's the creature going to be? Are we looking in the right place? Are we going to get a glimpse and that's uh, where the movie really pays off. And uh, it's an interesting, out-of-the-way creature feature from Adam Green. And uh, it ranks number four. Rustem Slobotkin, 23, the first of them to fall. Igor Dyatlov, 23, the group's leader and the most experienced hiker. It was probably his idea to try for the tents. Zineda Kolmogorova, 22. She was just a year older than I am now. She got the closest to the camp before succumbing, the only victim showing any sign of a struggle. She was missing her tongue and a large portion of her oral cavity. Ludmila Dublanina, 21. Nicholas Theobald Brignolel. Alexander Zolotarev. Alexander Kolevitov. The cause of death for all the victims was determined to be hypothermia. But Rustem and Nicholas also had severely crushed skulls. And Ludmila and Alexander Zolotarev had a number of broken ribs. But none of the bodies had any defensive injuries. No external injuries whatsoever. Somehow, something managed to crush the skulls of two men and shatter the ribs of Ludmila and Alexander without leaving so much as a bruise. The Devil's Pass is a 2013 found footage horror movie from director... Rennie Harland. It's an interesting piece of work. It goes into the story of a group of documentary filmmakers who are trying to investigate the very mysterious 1959 deaths 
of nine Russian outdoorsmen, hikers, skiers, whatever they were. Um, they were all found in various degrees of undress and various degrees of severe injuries, uh, although most of them, it seems, may have just died of exposure. But the realities of what actually took place, nobody really knows. And the conspiracy theories range from UFOs to Bigfoot to, I don't know, dinosaurs and <laughs> who knows what else, interdimensional beings. There's lights in the, people claim lights in the skies, strange footprints in the snow. There's all sorts of different directions that this strange mystery has been taken in. And in the end, nobody knows. And because nobody knows, I expect there will be a lot of horror movies that based on true events and the Dyatlov Pass incident. Here called The Devil's Pass, we get to know this group of filmmakers. They're actually more likable than usual. Some of them have their ups and downs, but um, a lot of times people complain in found footage movies that the characters aren't likable. Um, I don't want to get into what they find and, you know, obviously get into any kind of spoilers and this sort of rough outline taking it, but I will say that I think it's worthy of the journey. It's also interesting to talk about Rennie Harlan because it's the most interesting movie that he's made in years. Um, it was The 90s were like a great time to be Rennie Harlan. Uh, he did this really bonkers uh, ghost prison movie uh, called Prison. Um, he did nobody's favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie, The Dream Master. He did a very successful sequel to Die Hard. He did Cliffhanger, which, you know, might not be the most <laughs> smart movie, but it is it is an entertaining movie. I, I, can't, I have a soft spot for Cliffhanger. He almost bankrupted an entire studio with Cutthroat Island. He did this movie, Long Kiss Goodnight. And, of course, how can I not mention, uh, I just completely oversold it on a recent Shark episode. <laughs> Deep Blue Sea, <laughs> crazy, crazy B-movie with a A-movie budget. Uh, so there was a time where he was kind of a go-to popcorn director, and he's been very inconsistent, and it was really cool to see him tackle this interesting concept with, uh, you know, some panache. He's not working with a $250 million budget here, and uh, he's really good at sort of giving us the environment and raising the stakes, you know? At first, there's the creepiness of the mystery of the Dyatlov, you know, deaths in of itself, as explained to us. Then it's the actual environmental worries that they have to deal with. It's it's winter. They're camping out in the snow. There's a lot of, you know, survival issues to, to contend with. And then there's obviously the inevitable creepiness that will be encountered. I think it's a very well-measured and decently paced found-footage horror movie. Again, I, is it going to win people over? I don't know. Possibly. I, I think that it it does have a very harrowing and exciting third act, if people can get there. Um, a lot of found-footage movies tend to be sort of heavy in the action and the, the later into the movie, you know. The deeper into the movie you get, the more sort of scares, the more kinetic, the more crazy things tend to become. And that makes sense. It's It's kind of hard to be, you know... Hardcore Henry, where it's just kinetic, shaky cam for the entire hour and a half. You're gonna, you're gonna kill your audience. So I think it's well measured in that res in that regard, and I, I think it's a strong movie. It's just a strong horror movie, and it had been a while since I'd seen Rennie Harlan, you know, <laughs> at all, let alone doing something so interesting. So in third position, I'm giving it to The Devil's Pass, a very interesting and different found footage horror movie.
You know I love you. I gave you all I had. But there comes a day when the quality of your life matters more than the time you've got left to live. Ah, these men came here and destroyed everything we worked for. We can't let them go back to New York, no, because they would spread lies about us and what we have here. Then their government would send soldiers here to burn our homes and take our children and kill us all. That's right, we can't let that happen. No, I will not let that happen. Now, I didn't want to hurt these men, but somebody will come looking for them. You know they will. So whether they go or whether they stay, this is the end for us. It must be hard to hear that footage and not think of the Jonestown Massacre. I mean, if you don't think of the Jonestown Massacre when you hear that, then you, you probably just haven't heard of it somehow. <laughs> um, Ty West's film, The Sacrament, is not about that specific tragedy. It sort of invents its own version of it, or sort of a nouveau version of uh, a cult leader who is, you know brought his people to some place in Central America to build a utopia, but the utopia quickly becomes a prison, and um, the people become uh, pushed into two different sides, people who kind of want to get out of it and people who are so brainwashed that they don't realize, you know, what they've given up and uh, how much they're suffering. It, it's all for the good of this great leader. Um, Ty West is an interesting filmmaker. I. I've enjoyed most of his films. Um, he's got a reputation for taking his time, and I think maybe that is an earned reputation. If you are going to get into something like The House of the Devil or The Innkeepers, or indeed this movie, The Sacrament, I think you're going to be willing to meet the movie halfway and have patience and trust that it will pay off. Most of the time, Ty West pays off, and definitely in The Sacrament, he pays off. It's interesting because uh, he has full cooperation with Vice. Uh, the, the entire movie is the premise on the idea that it's a Vice documentary crew who are going to this settlement to see what this whole cult is about. They also have uh, with them uh, a person whose sister is in the cult who he's hoping to at least talk to, if not talk her out of the cult, at least see, because people have lost family members to it. Um, but I really like that structure because Vice investigative reporting is really true thing. So uh, it really grounds it in reality. When I talk about the integrity of the perspective, they're really good with that. Um, and the way that it starts being open interviews and it becomes more covertly filming things. Um, and then it becomes sort of a documenting of what's happening on the grounds and uh, what's happening to them as they're trying to escape or document or both. Um, it's it's a harrowing, harrowing horror movie, and uh, I think a lot of people might have missed that one. Another thing that is interesting to say about the sacrament is some of the cast involved. Um, A.J. Bowen is a regular fixture in horror movie cinema, and uh, he plays one of the reporters. It's interesting because he usually plays less than sympathetic characters. Um, 
I, he showed up in movies like the the signal and you're next and uh various other horror movies he's, he was in house of the devil as well um but it was kind of nice to see him playing a character that was you know whose motivations were not you know, <laughs> foggy or evil or, or misguided i wanted to talk about the lead performance of gene jones who's credited as father uh, i think that he is a terrifying terrifying performance of somebody who is you know lost in his own narcissism and uh has been lying and and sowing the seeds of this story for so long that he himself is the biggest truest believer of all of them you may recognize that actor he has a very famous scene in no country for old men where he is asked to call a coin toss between he and javier bardem he's an old owner of a gas station who encounters this evil evil man in no country for old men here he's given a full you know character to play and he is so so good in it it's it's powerful harrowing stuff also this as much as i respect and love the movie is not a movie that i would call necessarily fun there is real grit there's real harshness to it i mean i don't want to spoil things but yeah things do get ugly people do die and there are some really hard to watch things that that, that you're subjected to and hard to shake things it slowly kind of closes its fist over you and uh the suffocating atmosphere and the just the horrifying you feel like you're witnessing something you shouldn't be witnessing and it, it's kind of a haunting movie as a result and um, it feels like it should be some elaborate fiction but even though this aren't this particular event isn't based on a true thing we we know that things like this have and likely will happen so um, i thought that the choice of the forced perspective really helped the narrative in this case it wasn't something that got in the way um they were there with cameras to film things that didn't you know people didn't want to be filmed so they were they were going to keep rolling to the bitter end if that's what it came to and uh you're not sure if you want to see what you're seeing but you can't look away that means it's compelling filmmaking well uh yeah you said that you have uh, 30 of these yeah, i have about 60 people with some kind of blister and lesion outbreak some of them went into anaphylactic shock i have uh, excuse overgrowth. me you said now you have 60 I cases three people with their tongues half gone okay that's uh, a lot of information did you administer methicillin to the lesion victims yeah, of course i gave him methicillin it had no response what do you mean it kept spreading in how many cases in all of the cases Okay, that's important. Yeah, I know that's important because they still have spreading lesions. Do you have do you have any new information for me? Uh, not at this time. Um, this could be any number of things. It could be fungal or bacterial. Uh, we fungal. had a tropical fungus outbreak last year in Vancouver. Spread in about three hours, actually. Vancouver, three hours? Yeah. Uh, we uh, about thirty. We lost about thirty people died, I think. But it was just the fact that we hadn't seen it in the northern hemisphere before. Now, I, I did want to ask you: Did you say that you had people with half their tongues gone? Uh, yeah. Hold on. You didn't get pictures. Did you send those pictures to the CDC? You did. You you should have an attachment there with pictures that we sent you. Do you have them? The Bay is a positively chilling 2012 ecological horror film from prolific director Barry Levinson. This one gets you right in the gut, you guys. A, because even though it's over-the-top creature feature aesthetic might not 
readers immediately credible as like the size of the parasites or the, the creatures that they're talking about here. I think that much more likely they would be microscopic, you wouldn't see them, but the, that adds to the ick factor of the movie so much. And the way that the footage is compiled using a combination of security footage from hospitals, uh, 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 a journalist who's both covering the epidemic and the attempt to cover up the epidemic by the powers that be, and various home movie cameras and recovered video uh, from the people who were there celebrating the 4th of July uh, in 2009 in Claridge, Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay, where something terrible is swimming around in the water and is starting to have an effect on the population. Barry Levinson is a crazily bipolar director as far as I'm concerned. I mean, he's got some hits and he's got some real puzzling misses. I mean, even his misses are kind of interesting, but like, consider the fact that the same man who directed Diner, The Natural, Good Morning Vietnam, Bugsy, Wag the Dog, also directed movies like Toys, The Strange and Forgotten Jimmy Hollywood, Sphere, Disclosure, a Michael Crichton adaptation, and a bizarre comedy called Envy. There's a lot of strange ups and downs to Barry Levinson, and he's doing a lot of uh, television work and biopics for HBO uh, more recently in his career. But in 2012, out comes this really interesting forced perspective narrative ecological horror. And it's multi-branched, there's a lot of characters, and... Uh, you know, you don't know who to cheer for, who to get attached to, or who exactly your main protagonist is. But what it does is sort of successfully gross you out and sort of induce the paranoia, that uh, the helplessness that such a disaster would be. Like, can you leave? Does that get you safe? Or are you just spreading whatever this is to another place? How can you help those that are infected without getting infected yourself? And why? Why? Are the people in charge as much of a problem as they are help to this terrible disaster? I mean, there's a lot of meat to chew in this movie. It, it, it works as an effective horror movie, and it, it, it's eerily plausible outside of, like I said, the gross creature-feature aspect to it. But the you kind of believe that you know people would try to keep this a secret as long as they could until it was out of control to the point that it was almost too late. Um, and again, it, it really, it, it's, a, it's a chilling perspective on a natural disaster. And uh, it, it's a credible thing. Like, we, we depend on the powers that be. If, you know, a flood happens or an asteroid hits or if some terrible hole opens up, an earthquake happens and the, the ground is torn open, we always expect that there's some sort of apparatus there to help us. And either the apparatus isn't there to help us or it, it can in some cases actively be there to hinder um yeah it's a paranoid gross out forced perspective thriller from a prolific and uh, interesting filmmaker in barry levinson and in my first phase arguments for the credibility of found footage films i'm putting the bay by barry levinson at number one and if we can say that people like Barry Levinson and George Romero and M. Night Shyamalan and Adam Green and Ty West, if these people are interested in found footage, does that not suggest that maybe it's not strictly for amateurs and that maybe 
just maybe there's something to the genre. to part two of my argument for found footage, wherein we dispel the myth that all found footage films are the same. Because they're not, you guys. They're actually quite diverse. I've heard it said a lot of times, or people blogging about it, you know? It's just a bunch of people who go somewhere they shouldn't go, and then they die. Well, if that's a sin that's unforgivable, then it's a sin that most slasher movies and monster movies are guilty of as well. And I don't even think that's true as a structure. I mean, a lot of the Blair Witch imitators follow Blair Witch's sort of archetype almost too closely, and we can even mention a couple of those as they come along in these lists. But I think that uh, found footage has been used to attack a diverse amount of genres, and this next list of six movies is going to help me articulate it better than I am able just now. Number six, The Dinosaur Project from 2012. So here's the thing, you guys. I have a soft spot for dinosaurs. I do. I mean, I make excuses for the Fallen Kingdom Jurassic World movie. Uh, not because I think it's a fantastic movie, but because dinosaurs eat people. And there's like this, this 12-year-old boy inside of me that just loves watching that. I like all of the Jurassic Park movies, even the worst ones, in the same sort of loyal way that I kind of love even the Friday the 13th entries that I hate. I, I just love dinosaur movies and uh, especially Jurassic Park and Jurassic World because big budget dinosaur movies. Here with the Dinosaur Project what we're looking at is a fantasy action adventure shown through the edge of a young eager adventurer. Uh, it's a British production they are traveling to remote jungles of Africa to document uh, what appears to be a series of strange dinosaur sightings. 
his father, who's leading the expedition, sort of describes it as a more credible Loch Ness monster as far as its location, isolation, and its ability to remain hidden. But that's where the movie kind of throws a, a, a real surprise at you because it it's not this horror movie. It's not like about them finding this one lone creature and, you know, slowly one by one being eaten by it. It seems like all of a sudden some strange switch has been thrown and there are dinosaurs all over this movie. It defied my expectation and I respect at the very least its willingness to keep its pedal to the metal. Like, the movie keeps moving, it keeps throwing stuff at you. Its limitations are shown in some sort of ragged ends. Some of the cast are better than others, and some of the effects are better than others. But I really like the diversity of the dinosaurs, and like I said, I was sort of surprised at you know, how much different we saw. Like, I was expecting it to be a dinosaur, and we get a good variety. And not just, uh, you know, what we see, but how we see them. Sometimes in night vision, sometimes just glimpses in the water, sometimes a lot of close-in-camera interactions. It is a PG-13 uh, sort of level movie, and uh, it doesn't have the teeth and tissue that a lot of the gore hounds in the horror audience might want. But I do think it is a fun adventure movie. And it's, you know, it packs a lot into 83 minutes. And it would be almost a good sort of introductory kind of <laughs> entry-level sort of thing if you had like a teenager or someone like that just dipping their feet into the horror genre, the found footage genre. Like, this is the kind of subjective sort of footage that you'd be presented with, and this is the sort of structure that is somewhat familiar. To the, to the genre but uh, it ain't amazing but I love the ambition of such a low budget and I will guiltily recommend The Dinosaur Project Get away from the window Storm is a 2014 found footage weather drama thriller. <laughs> uh, it's in the vein of Twister, and I mean that in both a complimentary and not complimentary way. The credibility of the movie is kind of strange. I mean, the amount of storms that happen within one day in this one particular place is... It stretches credulity, let's be fair. And... If you're one of these people that are going to be looking at this movie and hitting it with hard facts, like once wind is blowing to a certain degree, around 300 miles per hour, something like that, you can't physically breathe in, in the, the air is just moving too fast for you to be able to take a breath, you know, and, you know, just little things like if it's a tornado that's strong enough to pull 
trees out of the ground and pull cars off of the, the, the street. People probably shouldn't be able to run around <laughs> through the gales. There are weird little questions like that, but there's something about storm movies that I find really interesting, and uh, there's something about tornadoes specifically that are, are quite terrifying. When I was a child growing up uh, just outside of Edmonton, Alberta, there was a terrible tornado, and uh, I've seen severe storms. I've seen that weird angry look in the sky, and there's some strange leveling force uh, about an extreme storm when you see that coming when you feel that coming it's a humbling humbling experience the movie is told through multiple different camera lenses which is one of the things i like the storm chasers of course make the most sense these people do exist and they live and love chasing tornadoes so while everybody else is running away from the debris and the hellscape they're driving right towards it uh, matt walsh memorably plays the man who's in this armored storm chasing car that can like plant itself into the ground and is supposedly able to withstand ridiculous pressures um sarah wayne callis who a lot of people will recognize from the walking dead also is in it um that's a double-edged sword i mean i i don't think she's a bad actress same thing with matt walsh but because they're both recognizable i think in a way it takes away from the reality of the found footage format that said, there's a lot of spectacle and light show. I like the different angles that they take on it with the cameras. There's security cameras inside the school when it gets hit. There's the kids and their phones. We live in a day and age where everybody has a, an operable, uh, has a camera in their pocket if they have a nice enough phone. And uh, the perspective jumps fairly consistently, but in a way... It jumps fairly chaotically, but in a way you always understand where you are and you you go with it. It's not as clean in its perspective as a lot of the found footage movies that we've been talking about. But I think that it's sheer momentum and the amount that it keeps stuff coming at you that it's only afterwards when you sort of sort of have time to think back. You like it's almost like a dream. <laughs> where it's so crazy while you're having the dream that you don't question it. But once you wake up, you think about it, and you're like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I think there are things in Into the Storm that don't make a lot of sense. But I also think it's quite entertaining. And it's not your average found footage film. So here it sits at number five. I just don't really know how to approach this because I've never done it before. Um, and he is a good friend. And I don't want to, I don't want to break that friendship. But then again, what do you do when someone tells you that they're a vampire? I'm expecting him to be angry. He might be scared. I'm expecting a lot of things to, to bubble to the surface. You probably notice has been, I've been going through a few changes lately. Yeah. 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 Like, I don't show up for lunch anymore. Yeah. And how I've changed the story. I'll, all our tennis games, the nighttime tennis games. Right. And how you went from beating me every time and how, how I, I've won the last three. Yeah. So the reason I brought you here is to tell you that I'm a vampire. What We Do in the Shadows is a 2014 horror comedy from Taika Watiti. I hope I'm saying that well. Uh, 
it's co-directed by him and Jermaine Clement, and it's about a bunch of vampires hanging out in New Zealand. Uh, Taika Waititi got the job of directing Thor Ragnarok off of this, and uh, you wouldn't think that you know somebody who did a relatively small mockumentary should be able to handle a Marvel cinematic picture so effectively, but boy does he. Thor Ragnarok's one of the most purely entertaining Marvel movies that they've done, I think. What we do in the shadows is a specific sort of sense of humor. There's, It's so dry at times that it could be considered a fire hazard, but I, I really enjoy how they manage to both have a lot of affection for the vampire genre while making fun of every branch of the tree. There's sort of the Nosferatu kind of toothy monster vampire, which they don't know, you know, there's not a lot of conversation to have with that kind of vampire, so they kind of find a solution to that. There's sort of the Anne Rice foppy, oh, oh, woe is me vampire. Uh, and then there's the more aggressive, seductive, kind of torturous vampires. And then there's the newbie, there's the modern day vampire, just trying to figure it out. And, uh, all of the lessons and the rules of uh, living the vampire lifestyle and uh, just the dynamics of roommates, you know. <laughs> I like that the movie doesn't shy away from the fact that they're vampires, too. They don't try to nice it up. They don't, you know, drink, I don't know, blood from a butcher shop or anything like that. No, they, they straight up kill people, but they're still very frank and charming <laughs> as they go about their business. This whole mockumentary comedy thing obviously has a rich history. The most famous one probably being This Is Spinal Tap, but basically almost everything that Christopher Guest has directed, almost everything, has been in this sort of template as well. I typically deal with horror, so I'm not going to mention any of those other movies as we move on in my found footage defense, and again, mockumentary is a little bit of a different thing, but what we do in the shadows is a very unique interesting, entertaining, funny, found footage comedy horror movie, and uh, it's not the typical fare at all. If you're a fan of Flight of the Concords, you will like this. It is odd, it is strange, and uh, you, you kind of have to catch the vibe of the, the movie. It's... I think it's one of those things where if you do go with the movie, if you do catch the vibe, it'll be probably one of your favorite movies. If not, I think you'll still be entertained by it. You'll just think, man, that movie was really weird. <laughs> I love what we do in the shadows. And I think most people with a sense of humor will probably be on the same side. Uh, I also appreciate a movie that takes the piss out of vampires because vampires have never been my favorite creature and uh, especially in the, these recent days, you know. We need another 30 days of night. We need, we need a movie to come around and make vampires scary because they're almost the opposite of that these days. Um, vampires are almost better suited right now to what we do in the shadows than doing a proper horror movie and somebody needs to shake that up. In the meantime, please check out what we do in the shadows, though. This zone was much warmer, much more active than any previous data had suggested. Underwater vents had rendered the ice brittle and unstable and, and constantly shifting. And uh, then you add on to that, William had jettisoned the water shielding on the scent, and that had saved them, uh, but it also left them dangerously exposed to radiation. We're leaking oxygen, and we're also losing heat. 
three degrees since I start checking. If I would bet, we freeze before we suffocate. The exterior light should be working. Daniel, can you check? Daniel? I am. It's not good. The ice is cracking under the ship. You can almost see the ice water interface. Beneath that shell of ice, we hope to find the proof that we're not alone. And just the thought of such discovery is enough to keep me going. To imagine if it could be proved that anything was truly possible. Europa may not be a dead rock. It may be an ocean layered with ice. And perhaps it is the potential of what may lie beneath that surface that will convince this once flat world to dream again. So said a young poet in the 1900s named Larry Parsons when he read about Europa, a moon of Jupiter that not only has the closest living conditions to what we could find for human beings on Earth, it has the best potential within arm's reach of where we are. (laughs) And granted, I'm talking in universal terms, so not that close at all. There could well be life under that ice, and we get closer to discovering whether or not that's true every day. So that's right, I'm not just a person who produces underheard podcasts or directs underseen movies. I also write underread poetry. Europa reported a 2013 found footage sci-fi adventure horror thing (laughs) that is supposedly a dramatization of... uh, an astronaut crew headed out to Europa to find what there is to find. It's an international crew and consequently an international cast. The most recognizable being Charlton Copley from South Africa. He was in um, District 9 and uh, Hardcore Harry and a bunch of other stuff. He's a really solid actor. And uh, it's very credible that this would all be documented, that everybody would have their own personal video diaries, that there would be cameras all over the ship documenting this incredibly historical and important mission. Uh, It has all the claustrophobia and all of the danger inherent in space travel, and then the mystery and possible adventure, who knows what they'll find when they get there. I'm sure not going to tell you here, but I do think it's a really strong found footage horror film and it doesn't get enough respect. There is something uniquely terrifying about space travel. I mean, I have my problems with the ocean. And, you know, brave, brave souls would build these wooden ships on rickety things and sail them across vast quantities of ocean. And I think that the amount of courage must be almost insane, especially when they didn't have good maps or good ways of rescue you know back in the day if a ship started to sink it's not like you could call someone to the coast guard to come and get you and in space this problem is magnified by a ridiculous degree there are solar storms uh, there are random comets the way there can be random waves there uh, the environment itself can kill you you know <laughs> you will freeze and you will suffocate fairly quickly not to mention all of the radiation that is pummeling you as you travel through space So we don't really need any kind of major adversary, but we do have this really tantalizing mystery. Can they get to Europa? What will they find when they get there? 
you know. And uh, I like the different perspectives from all of the different crew members. And when things first start to go wrong, the way you can see they're all demoralized. But what choice do they have but to keep moving forward? Um, the stakes in the movie really, really work because they are utterly alone out there. And I, I think few science fiction movies really attack that psychological weight of traveling through space and being utterly alone, utterly vulnerable. And, uh, you know, all of this, all of this risk is just bounced off your need and want to explore, to be first, to see something that no one else has seen. People will risk their lives and uh, they will document it. And again, that's very credible. All the cameras on board the, the, the ship, all the crew doing their own personal diaries and takes on it, all of it being uploaded and sent back to Earth. And will they get the information? Or, you know, how do they deal with these losses since there's no one that they can talk to necessarily right away to help them? They are in a very real way on their own. And when you're watching the movie, you feel like you're on your own with them. It also has a lot of different tracks that it takes. So there's people talking about the mission from a historic standpoint. There's, You get the feeling like we are catching up with the story, that this footage is being shown to us in a specific way. It's one of those interesting questions that not too many found footage movies go into answering is, who assembled this footage? One of the big tells of uh, found footage as far as the production on it is score. Obviously, if they're capturing these things that happens, there, there shouldn't necessarily be spooky score behind it. And even when they do use it in films like Exists and other ones, Blair Witch even, it's very, very, very subtle. Uh, in science fiction movies like this, it's just the gasping for air in the respirator and uh, the, the desperate hollow clunks of the metal on the ships. And uh, it's... It's something else. It's a very different sci-fi drama horror thing. It's really hard to categorize it, but I really, really like it. And I think if you like science fiction, you should check it out. And if you're worried about found footage, I think this is one that maybe will reach you. Check out the Europa Report. Dude, you can't. Bro, we gotta get out of here, man. Listen to me. We gotta, we gotta get moving, man. We go to the Manhattan Bridge, you know? We gotta get out of here. It's not safe here. Okay, we go to the other side. We can try and get to the Lincoln Tunnel. I don't know, man. I don't know. Dude, we gotta get out of here. It's not safe here. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Hey! Cloverfield is a 2008 sci-fi horror action film from writer Drew Goddard and director Matthew Reeves, or Matt Reeves as he is credited here. Um, it's about a bunch of friends who are at a party celebrating the imminent departure of one of them when suddenly a catastrophe starts to unfold in New York City. And what that catastrophe is, this is not a spoiler, it's pretty clear, is some gigantic creature has just appeared out of the ocean and started to ransack and destroy New York City. Military are there, there's a mass exodus of people trying to get out of the place, and it's a huge, epic piece of sci fi fantasy horror filmmaking, and all of it is plugged into the lens of this one camera. We see this group of survivors at first trying to leave and then trying to help one of the main characters get to his ex girlfriend who is trapped in a damaged building. 
we get to sort of learn the rules of this crazy new world at the same time as our characters do. And uh, it's an undeniably exciting and well-handled found footage movie. The interesting thing I find about Cloverfield is just how dependent it is on the Blair Witch sort of setup. This was less than 10 years after Blair Witch had been released. But as far as the online marketing campaign that sort of gave you hints of what the story is or this bizarre history of the, this Cloverfield creature or whatever it would be, would be to generate interest in sort of the nerd community online very early and uh, sort of snowball it so that it has a pretty impressive word of mouth before the thing even opens. And it is, like I said, a group of friends withstanding a tragedy and documenting it down to the very final bitter end if they can. It is so much Blair Witch that it, it, it's crazy. And in a way, I, I mean, I think that the scale of it is bigger. The special effects are definitely better. They definitely show you more than Blair Witch. But almost 10 years later, I don't think they've necessarily improved on the Blair Witch formula. They've made it bigger and louder and more appropriate for the cinematic audiences. But uh, it's interesting. I have a lot of people I know who really love Cloverfield and really hate Blair Witch, and I really kind of feel like you could lay those movies next to each other, and, and they're, they're incredibly similar in a lot of ways. Now, I didn't mean to sound like I was talking negatively about Cloverfield. I do think that's a very entertaining movie, and I do think that I like the way that the information is parsed out kind of slowly, that we are as lost and confused and terrified as the survivors as they see what's happening to them. And the stakes keep on getting ratcheted up. I mean, minor spoilers, there's not just one creature, there's also these little parasite creatures so that they have more one-on-one -on -one chase sequences. There's a harrowing sequence in a subway tunnel. And uh, it's, it's a fun, interesting, epic found footage movie like you don't see. And of course, Matt Reeves and Drew Goddard have both gone on to great things. Um, the Cloverfield franchise itself has kind of gone strange. The sequel of sorts, 10 Cloverfield Lane, is much more of a psychological Twilight Zone-y uh, one-room thriller. And then, of course, there's the completely out-there sci-fi of the Cloverfield paradox. And who knows what is to come further uh, with the Cloverfield universe. But I'm on board, and it started here in 2008, and it started quite strongly. Hunter is a 2010 found footage horror film, sort of pseudo-documentary, uh, about a Norwegian group of filmmakers who want to do a documentary on what they believe is a bear poacher and a bunch of mysterious disappearances and natural impact that's happening, uh, environmental impact that's happening. And uh, they stumble upon this old curmudgeon who claims to be making his living on the government dole basically keeping an eye on and maintaining the troll population. It is as strange as it sounds, but what I love about Troll Hunter is how straight-faced it is. No matter how ludicrous what you see becomes, no matter how strange the creatures you encounter becomes, the movie seems not only to be looking at it straight-faced, but almost indifferently. 
the troll hunter himself is so over this job. <laughs> he is not impressed by it. We are. He's not horrified by, you know, having to haul around barrels of Christian blood to lure trolls and doesn't think it's strange or ludicrous. But we do. Uh, it reminds me, I was talking earlier about the film Digging Up the Marrow, how uh, the creatures in that movie were so out there that if you were to actually see something like that, you'd hesitate on reporting it because just no one would believe you. I love, love, love the design of these strange trolls. They're very traditional Norwegian creatures. Some of them have multiple heads, but only one that works. They have these weird, bulbous, cartoony noses. They can smell your, your faith, your Christianity, which is... Uh, a really interesting sort of part of the lore of the trolls. And yet, for all of its ludicrousness, there's 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 a a a little bit of sort of melancholy in it, this idea that this old guy has been living this extraordinary life for all of these years, doing these extraordinary things, and he can't tell anybody about it, and he's kind of grown indifferent to it. It sort of speaks to this psychological thing where no matter what you do if seems like if you do it for long enough you're just over it <laughs> you know uh and the fact that he can't have a normal life because of this job and because it's such a thankless job um it seems like he's got to the point in his life where he just doesn't care anymore and he probably knows that he's breaking all sorts of rules by letting this documentary team follow him around and he is just past the point of caring we get to learn how he deals with errant trolls when they go out of their territory where they're supposed to, not supposed to be, how he can hit them with certain kinds of lights to calcify their bones and turn them into statues. The world is rich and interesting. The special effects for a found footage movie like this are strangely strong considering like your brain has a hard time doing the math on the reality of those trolls, but on some level you just don't deny what you're seeing because you're seeing it very impressive with the cgi special effects because uh it's not easy to do cgi at the best of times but with a, a an errant shaky camera perspective it makes the work of the special effects crew so much harder and to make creatures that are so inherently ridiculous and cartoonish live and breathe in the real world in a way that can give us some stakes and even some scares i mean it's an impressive feat uh there was rumblings that perhaps it was going to be remade. I, I don't know how you do an American version of Troll Hunter. It seems so uniquely what it is. But uh, I am deeply impressed with it. I mean, I can't fully articulate <laughs> how strange and wonderful it was to find this movie for the first time. And uh, it's one of my go-to answers when people are talking about, you know the found footage genre and what's a good one to watch <laughs> you've never ever seen a movie like troll hunter and uh, so far it's not been sequelized it hasn't been remade it just is what it is and what that is is wonderful the director also went on to make a film called the autopsy of jane doe which couldn't be more different than troll hunter but is equally a very very strong horror genre film i mean what can I say? This is a fantasy monster film, you know? And as far as my argument is, this whole list of movies that we've just talked about here and dispelling the myth that found footage films are all the same. We have this Troll Hunter pseudo-documentary. We have a Godzilla-esque monster attacking New York in Cloverfield. We have a sci-fi drama adventure in Europa Report. We have a vampire 
pseudo-documentary comedy. We have a storm-chasing adventure, and we have a dinosaur adventure, and these are all very different genres and all very different tones. And just because they're being handled in a found footage perspective, a lot of people will not even give them a day in court. So no, no you guys, not all found footage films are the same. I, I stand by that argument and shall continue to. And so uh, ends part two of my argument in favor of found footage. And for the third argument for found footage, I'm going to talk about location, how having this forced perspective can be helpful. The next list of six movies are going to be talking about found footage stories that happen in really specific locations, some of which that you would think would benefit from a more cinematic approach. You can have these lilted angles and you can choose what you show. But I will argue, sometimes the chaos of the moving camera the leaving you wanting to see those dark corners will have a more profound psychological effect than the composed professional look of pure cinema. Here we go with the final rank of this episode. Just, just hold on. Hold on. I reckon he's trying to get us lost on purpose. Feels like he's just taking us around in circles. Mate, you're the one who told me to let him lead. Bye, Eddie. Come Eddie, on, Eddie. It's getting late. Come, come here. On, let's move. No, come here. This is crazy. Come on, Eddie. Come on, Larry. Here to go. What? No, it's getting late. Shh, hang on. Can we just move? No, look. We've tried going this way. There's nothing down here, mate. Let's. It's a little bit, little more, mate. No, it's this is north. More, this way is north. There's a creek up ahead. It's not far. If we mm. find it, get through it. A creek is up that way, mate. Says here on the map. It's Due north, directly that way. We get to the Sun creek. Is that way, the north is that way. For fuck's sake, Addy. Addy, we're going. Oh, come on, Eddie, Eddie. come on. The Jungle is a 2013 found footage horror film about two brothers named Bob and Larry Black who go to the Indonesian jungle to look for some rare, thought to be extinct big cats. And uh, as maybe is not surprising, as we've talked about a lot of found footage movies, things don't go well. Um, Andrew Trauke is the director. He's an Australian guy. He did uh, a couple of really great sort of real-world monster creature features. Uh, Blackwater, or, yeah, Blackwater and The Reef, I believe that is the right name of that movie. Um, and this sort of would complete a trilogy of sort of three when animals attack in quotation mark movies. Now, I don't, I don't mean to give away anything that's going to happen particularly about this found footage adventure. And of those three movies, I will confess, I think that The Jungle is the weakest of them. But I do think it's kind of interesting. This is definitely not the found footage movie that's going to win you over. This is not going to, you know, <laughs> help my case in a lot of ways as far as the problems that the genre presents. There are characters who are very counterproductive and, and frustrating to deal with. And there are some obvious bad decisions being made. I don't think that the cast let us down, but I think that the movie could be accused of holding its cards too close for too long. That said, when talking about the use of the environment, the idea of having this guide that you don't completely trust leading you into the, this dense, dense jungle, and sort of starting to feel like you don't really trust him, and sort of that trust starting to, to erode, and 
the feeling that things are going wrong right away, and the very gradual build. That aspect of this movie, I think, works really strong. And just the way that they capture the jungle, and they're, they're trying to find these animals, so they have night light or, or, or night vision on the cameras. They have all sorts of different tricks that they can use to try and see things in, in dense woods. And they hear stuff, and there's a lot of misdirection and a lot of the things that you would obviously expect to see in a found footage type of situation. But the jungle is so much alive. It is so real in this movie. Like, sometimes it's this incredible scree of, like, insects and, and, and noise and, like, like the environment itself seems to be a living thing. It's so alive. And then sometimes it's terrifyingly silent. A lot of this is obviously accomplished with sound design, but... I think it's really effective and accenting the loneliness and the scariness of a dense jungle location. And I don't know that it would be the same if it was shot in a traditional way. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think there's something about the jungle that the feeling of being lost and helpless is where it really gets me. The more conventional elements of the movie are, well, conventional. I forgive the tropes of the genre because I'm a fan of the genre, but I'm guessing others won't. But I like this director. I like that he likes to ground his horror in the real world. And I like that he will give us usually compelling characters that we can care about and that he's not predictable with what he does with them. Again, I'm not here to spoil the jungle for anybody, so uh, that's about as deep as I will get into it. But keep an eye on Chucky, and uh, if you're a brave soul give the jungle a try because I think it's kind of underseen. Like I said, it's not going to reinvent the wheel as far as found footage, but as far as using the environment and as far as taking you on a journey, if you're willing to go on that journey, this movie does the job. This panel depicts the final judgment, the weighing of souls. What? It's from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. When a person died, they passed into a room. They were brought before Osiris and a panel of judges. And next to them was a massive scale. Then the god Anubis weighed their heart against Mot, the goddess of truth. And if it balanced perfectly, they passed into the afterlife. They believed they were sent to Piscai to dwell among the stars. I thought the Book of the Dead was just full of spells and incantations. No, it's more than that. It's a guide to immortality. Oh, this was central to Egyptian philosophy. This is the final milestone. And you believed in this rubbish, do you? They believed it. I think the priests acted out this ritual. None of this matters unless we get out of here. We've got to go. Let's go, let's go. The Pyramid is a 2014 found footage sort of horror movie directed by Gregory Levasseur. It is produced by Alexander Aja, who uh, people who are fans of horror films are going to probably recognize that name. Um, usually when he puts his name to something even on a production level there's something to it, there's something interesting about it and the pyramid is no exception but as when I was talking about the jungle I will admit that the pyramid has some problems uh, when I talked in the introduction about the integrity of the perspective this movie starts legitimately found footage and the deeper into the movie we get the less found footage it becomes until we get to the finale of the movie where it's not found footage at all. And I am 
a believer in the best found footage movies that you pick a lane and you stay in that lane and uh, I think in that way creatively it, it becomes a little bit confused but what I will say is that it's a pretty intense experience <laughs> there's some genuinely chilling and horrifyingly violent moments in the film and uh, when they couldn't fully exploit the found footage they just kind of cheated and I think what they were banking on was that you would be so enthralled with what was going on you would stop thinking of it as a found footage film and I think largely you kind of do go with it but it's flawed in its execution as found footage and I would feel remiss if I didn't call it out on that but the premise is solid as a fucking rock they uh, have found a pyramid buried in the sand and it's kind of different and curious compared to other pyramids that have been discovered and these people are the first people to access it and explore it and they end up discovering some pretty horrifying things and yes grim fates await the claustrophobic nature of the the pyramid itself and the devolving of the character's sort of sense of safety and sanity uh, I think is really kind of fun but when we get into sort of some of the CG craziness that that takes over in the second act of the movie I mean there are problems but it is never not interesting while you're watching it as far as using the found footage for the environment, when it works, it works incredibly. There is some crazily claustrophobic movies, uh, moments in the movie. It, it almost reminded me of The Descent and that it was sort of kind of creepy before it got creepy because I couldn't imagine putting myself through these tight corridors or, or fighting my way through a, a sand trap when, you know, rooms start filling with sand and things like this. Like the claustrophobia, the darkness, the un the, the unknowable things, that who knows what they're going to see from chamber to chamber, from room to room. They don't. And as things get weirder and things get, you know, crazier, um, they're constantly trying to talk to each other as a way, like, it's okay, right? We're okay, we're okay, aren't we? And as the audience, we're like, no, you are not. And emotionally, I'm with the movie. It's flawed, but it's very interesting. I mean... I think if you're listening this deeply and if you've had the patience enough to get this far into this rambling podcast on found footage, that you're on board for the horror genre. And if you're willing to meet a movie halfway or give a movie a chance, I think there's enough good in the pyramid that it's totally worth your time. Um, it's, it's a ride. It's an experience. And some stuff might make you shake your head, but enough stuff will, will, will get your blood up that I think it's worthy of the experience. And yes, the environment, terrifying. You would never find me in some old ruins like that. I wouldn't fit in it anyway, but uh, no. No, thank you. Out in the woods with my, my dog, Bella, a beautiful girl. She was a golden retriever. And uh, well, she, she took off into the woods, and, uh, and I called, called for her to stop, and uh, she didn't. You know, she just kept going, and uh, which is weird because usually she's very obedient. And uh, so I went in the woods after. I was, I was calling and calling and uh, nothing, you know. She, uh, I kept calling, and, and, and I started to get a little nervous because the sun was going down, and it was starting to get dark. 
And uh, I kept calling, and all of a sudden I heard this, 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 she was growling and whimpering, and uh, and then she cut loose with this, with this horrible growl, wail kind of. It was, it was like a scream. When I got there, it was too late. She was dead. I love that dog. It hurt bad. Uh, something or, or something, it, it just ripped poor Bella in half. Willow Creek is a 2013 found footage Bigfoot movie directed and written by Bobcat Goldthwaite. I think that this would be a really interesting first entry in the found footage. I think that whereas I was talking previously in the pyramid how the integrity of the perspective was really broken in that movie, it is very, very, very authentic in Willow Creek. I really believe that most of the time like when he's doing these interviews about Bigfoot people that he would he would keep those shots these are the things that he would be recording you know uh, he's taking his girlfriend out in this adventure uh, to celebrate his birthday to see the place where Bigfoot was supposedly first sighted and spend some time in the deep woods and you know be romantic with his girl and sort of live out a childhood dream the couple, played by Alexi Gilmore and Bryce Johnson, are very believable. The footage they shoot is very believable. And I think a case could be made that the entire movie is just, you know, contained in this one section of footage, sort of looping inside of the camera. I really enjoy Willow Creek. I have a, a lot of respect. I think it's really well calibrated and patiently paced creepy movie and it has a really really audacious and ambitious central scene involving just the couple in a tent listening to things that goes on for quite a long time that I think if you're into does everything that I believe found footage should do as good as you'll see it since the Blair Witch Project perhaps at least within that sequence but I do think you could lay down this movie on top of Blair Witch Project and you'll see a lot of similarities. People go somewhere they shouldn't. They learn the local lore. They go into the woods and they don't find what they expect to find or want to find. Again, without giving away the whole show, I mean, even if you haven't seen this movie, it'll feel like you've seen this movie. Unless, of course, it was your first at bat with found footage. If you're a found footage lover, this is a really good entry point. But if you're not, I think this is the one that you can take a lot of swats at. You know, I think that a lot of people who are less patient with the narrative or like want to see more, uh, I think that's where the found footage is really good. Is like they leave you wanting more. They keep the danger in the darkness. I think that this new age of you know, Transformers movies or Harry Potter magic where all of the wonder is right there in front of your eyes, there to dazzle you like in a a Marvel movie is everything you could imagine a comic book movie could be, you would think. It's so, we're so used to, you know, them not holding back at all that somehow we feel cheated 
when we don't get to see everything that we would like to. But I think that leaving it in the darkness, letting our imagination do the work, can be the kind of movie that you think about. And Willow Creek is the kind of movie I would think about if I was sleeping in a tent in the forest, anywhere. It would come to my mind the same way Jaws would come into my mind if I was on a beach. That is an accomplishment. Again, I don't think it's going to win new fans to the genre, but the environment captured in those woods and the atmosphere of dread I don't think would have been quite as powerful if it was shot cinematically. You better not be fucking with us. Did you hear that? Is that a phone? Are there phones down here? The phone company used to, to run lines through here, but they... Run lines through here? Yeah. Well, they must have left some. No. Fifty years ago, they, they, they took everything. Go. This is wrong. Scarlet. Scarlet. Maggie, don't fire. This is the spot that I was what? talking about. This is where the buildings collapsed into the ground. Hundreds of people fell to their death right here. Yes. Being a fan of all things creepy and horror, you bump into strange tales on the internet. One of those strange tales that really stuck with me, kind of haunted me really, was the story of a young Ukrainian woman who uh, supposedly got separated from a party that was happening in the uh, catacombs beneath this Ukrainian city. I believe they were, they were Odessa catacombs when I, the, the article that I had read. And if you don't know where you're going, there's a reason they don't want you to be down there. She apparently was drunk, she wandered off, and she must have spent days wandering in these endless dark crevices and hallways and mud and darkness and eventually just died. And one would wonder, like, how mad would she have driven herself before she, you know, finally succumbed to starvation or thirst or exposure or what kind of special madness, what kind of horrible grim fate could that possibly be? Now, I tried to find the article again and I've heard different variations of the story and it turns out that it might just be not a thing that really happened. It's one of those stories that maybe isn't true, but seems like it ought to be true. Not that I would wish such a horrifying fate on anyone. I couldn't help but think of that story when I watched 2014's As Above, So Below, a movie that a lot of people don't seem to like as much as I do. I, I, mean, I think there's amazing sequences within the movie, um, but I guess it's hard for people to get behind the mindset of these kids who are going to explore the Paris catacombs, you know. Everything's forbidden, they try to keep people out of there, but it's this almost impossible thing. And what a fantastic location, I mean, how not, how could you not exploit this kind of history for a horror? I've spent some time in New Orleans, I love that city, and it has a vast above-ground cemetery called the City of the Dead. Well, I think Paris has an even vaster cemetery, but it's beneath the city. The whole city rests upon thousands and thousands of bones, and there are tunnels and halls and 
you know, flooded out pieces of areas and forgotten, crumbled, demolished buildings all buried beneath this maze of nonsense full of rats and bones and dirt. And people like to go down there and hang out and homeless people live there and kids go there exploring and they find some chilling things. And it's credible, you know, that they would have these head-mounted cameras, and it's credible that they would be filming each other, and it's credible that they would be falling apart as things continue to get worse and worse for them. But, again, I think it speaks to my claustrophobia, and I think it speaks to just the perfect environment to set a horror movie. I mean, I think that the movie was about two-thirds of the way there just because they shot it in the Paris catacombs. I can't imagine a more terrifying place to be lost. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that a compelling movie could be made of a bunch of kids getting lost in the Paris catacombs and crazy, you know, supernatural stuff doesn't take place. Mild spoilers, As Above, So Below does have some supernatural shenanigans. But um, I think that there's some, again, really compelling sequences, and the movie didn't exactly go where I was expecting it to, both through to its conclusion and to just the mechanics of the plot. So because it surprised me a few times and because I found the environment so compelling, I endorse As Above, So Below. But I, I hear a lot of hate for that movie, so... Um, and maybe take it with a grain of salt. But again, as far as using the found footage to make a scary environment even scarier, yes, yes, yes. No, this is the fucking lobby. This is the fucking lobby, dude. Yeah. We came in this way, right? Hell yeah! Yeah. This is the this is the lobby. Yeah. This can't be right. This is impossible. This is the way we. This is where we put our shit, right? Yeah. This is the way we. This is how we brought the stuff in. This doesn't make sense, but I don't understand this. Shit. This doesn't make any sense. This is the way we came in. I, it, it's just another hallway. It doesn't. I don't know. We must have gotten turned around in here. We must be on the other side of the building or something. Lance. Grave Encounters is a 2011 found footage horror movie directed by the Vicious Brothers. I'm going to keep my eye on these kids. I'm cheering for them. They've made uh, extraterrestrial and a sort of strange but memorable zombie movie called It Stains the Sands Red. And uh, they've produced a sequel to this movie. And uh, they're young and ambitious horror makers, and I am cheering for them. This is another one of these found footage movies that seems to have split people right down the middle. And it is a carnival ride funhouse type of movie. And it is remarkably conventional in its sort of ghost house aesthetic. A TV show that does these cheesy documentaries about haunted places comes to the wrong building to shoot an episode. Because even though they're happy to fake things whenever they have the opportunity, they will pay for a story if there isn't a story to be found, or they will make up a story if there isn't a story to be found, or they will hire an actor to play a psychic to channel the ghosts within the building. They're not above these tricks, but they're also believers. And I think there's something great about the idea of 
people who really want, who really sincerely dedicated their lives to finding this ghost, finding this thing, and when they actually find it, just not being what they wanted or hoped or anticipated at all. And maybe they never really believed it, who knows. The movie doesn't dig too deep into the psychology of the crew, at least with the exception of maybe the, the show's host. It's mainly interested in making you jump, giving you these moments of boo. And as a hardened horror fan, I felt like I, I, I've been jump scared out. Jump scares rarely work for me. They're just sort of like, well, that was a waste of time and we're not really telling any story. And, you know, a cat jumped out of a closet. Boo. And what surprised me about Grave Encounters is how many times I jumped while I watched it. And how the sort of popcorn again carnival ghost house experience did work for me. And I think it worked because of the perspective of the found footage. The integrity of the perspective was absolutely there. There was a reason that everybody had cameras and there was a reason they kept on filming. They were there to film ghosts and when ghost stuff started happening, why would they not be filming it, you know? Even though there is a character who gets tired of the camera, you know, and does complain about it, uh, it seems credible when it happens and it's it's a tough scene that has to be dealt with. Like I said, it's like the psychic in a haunted house movie where they do, you know, uh, the medium has to talk to the spirit. It's been done a thousand times. How do you handle it? Whether or not they handled that particular moment strongly enough, I think that the movie is just straightly entertaining in a ghost jumps out of the dark type of way. If that's what you're looking for, I genuinely think that this movie does the job. But I seem, again, to be kind of in the minority, because I've heard a lot of people be very dismissive of Grave Encounters. There is a sort of deliberate cheesiness to the cast and crew of the documentary show, especially in the first act. And I think... I'm going to give the Vicious Brothers, as cheesy as their names are, credit. I think that they deliberately tried to knock you off balance by making you think that these kids were going to be taught a lesson or that there was something sort of safe about the approach that they were going to take to this movie. And uh, the wheels kind of go off the cart in the third act and things start getting pretty strange and pretty dark. And... Uh, for me, I think it was a worthy ride. It's also, you know, a Canadian-made horror movie. A lot of great movies are made in my country, and I always like to shout them out when they're there. And, uh, yeah, it was a, a, a good first feature, a good micro-budget, like, low-budget low feature that really delivered the goods. And in a way that I don't think, again, if they shot it conventionally, would have worked. I think it was scary because, you know, they were capturing it in their own cameras, and we slowly but surely, even though we've seen these conventions before, found ourselves putting ourselves in their place, walking through these dark rooms, and finding what they find in these environments. I think it's an underrated movie. I was blown away by the size of it. It was massive and just eerie. You know, I think we're all in, in awe of it. It wasn't really difficult to get great looking shots down there. 
you know, because he's really just painting stuff with your light and whatever you saw. That just was, it looked really cool. Speaking of great underrated movies, The Tunnel is a 2011 Australian found footage horror movie uh, about a, another great location. There is a huge tunnel <laughs> beneath Sydney, Australia. There's got water reserves there, there's bomb shelters down there, and it just seems to go on and on and on and on. And what we have here is a investigative journalist team looking into a story of a why they're not using the water reserves during a drought, and B, how it feeds into why a bunch of homeless people have gone missing. And they kind of go rogue, and they go exploring this tunnel. And uh, the environment is incredible. And the deeper they explore, and the more danger that they come into, and the more you get the feeling like the powers that be have a reason for keeping these secrets. And uh, it's a really compelling thriller. And there's a these are mild, mild spoilers, but there's a really, really strong centerpiece scene. In a way, it's called the bell room scene, I guess, is what I'll call it. But uh, they find this room with a gigantic bell in it and, uh, you know, roll footage on it. And it's the complications of shooting that and the noise that they make. It's the instigating mo moment, I think, of the movie. It's where the movie goes from one thing to another. I'm trying to be delicate because I don't want to spoil the movies. These are just sort of... We're just passing by these movies. This is not a proper rank and review review. Um, I do invite you to go listen to episode 25 of Rank and Review, which is dedicated to found footage and does have the tunnel uh, it, where me and my friend Jaron Francis kind of get into it a little bit. Um, it's completely credible. I love the cast. I love that the perspective shifts because all of the footage that we're seeing, we know that the certain people have made it through to talk about the footage. And they're actually commenting on the footage documentary style. We do cutaways from the footage to them talking about how they felt at the time. Again, the artifice is, it's, there's a lot of layers to it, but it's completely credible. It feels like a documentary that you'd watch on TV and it feels kind of credible. And it doesn't take away from the suspense that you kind of know by process of elimination who's there and who's not to talk about the story after the fact. So from the layers and complicated way that they were telling the story to the genuine chills and thrills within the film itself, I mean, this is a movie that people missed. And this is an environment that, like, who even knew existed? It's a dark little corner of the world that was just waiting for someone to bring a camera to show us and scare us. And it does both of those things. I talked about the jungle, the pyramid, Willow Creek, as above, so below, grave encounters, and now the tunnel. And I think that as good as those different environments are, and as you know, cool as you could get great angles, you know, if you shot it cinematically, my argument, my last argument for this episode of Rank and Review and my defense of found footage, is that the shaky cam helped us here. That Hearing the voice behind the camera, seeing the perspective, and hearing their fright enhanced those environments, made things stronger than they might have otherwise been. So for now, here endeth the lesson on found footage. 
I'm going to do this again next next episode of Rankin Review, so I hope you can bear with me for one more episode, but I will try to be more focused and concise with my approach. Um, this was a new territory that I was bra- breaking into here, and uh, who knows? Send feedback to review at gmail.com and tell me. Tell me just how badly I need to have a guest for every single episode of this show. Uh, thank you for bearing with me. I hope you continue to bear with me in the next episode. But if not, if it's not your cup of tea, if you've shaken off the found footage, so be it. Just trust that our regular episodes of Rank and Review shall continue. And that was my first part of the two-part epic defense of found footage. I hope you tune into the second episode. Please do send that feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. Please check out the website at rankandreview.ca. I'm on Facebook. I'm on iTunes. Please give a positive review to the show on iTunes. That does help my numbers. Please do, you know, give it a like on Facebook or who knows, maybe even share it with a friend. Um, all these things you can do to help me. And if you like Rank and Review, I think you probably would like the Terror Table podcast. They're another Saskatoon-based podcast, and I think they got the goods. So check out the Terror Table and continue listening to Rank and Review. Thank you so much for your time. I do really appreciate it.